Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So good to be with you here tonight. Uh, We're continuing our journey uh, through the first part of the Gospel of Matthew. And for the past two months, that's what we've been looking at. Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and chapter 5 is where we are now. We've gone from the birth of Jesus to the Magi who visited him to the baptism of Jesus to the call of Jesus' disciples to Jesus beginning to preach about the kingdom of heaven, about his reign in our lives. And then he started the Sermon on the Mount. And he started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the blessings. And last week, in that same Sermon on the Mount, he reminded us of our identity as his kingdom people, that we are salt and that we are light in this world. And uh, last week at the 9.30 service, that's when we predicted that the Patriots would win based on Matthew Slater's testimony of Jesus, right? And uh, everyone thought it wasn't going to be possible, but then bam, they won, didn't they? Yeah, they sure did. All right. Who was in favor of the Patriots winning? All right. Okay. Okay. I mean, did Matthew Slater's testimony, who saw that? Anybody see that? It's pretty powerful and awesome. His testimony of his faith, he was being salt and light to the world. And uh, it, it was a great, great, great word of God for 1.4 million people to hear about Jesus in that way. So we continue on, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, before we jump into the text, I want to ask you a question first. And uh, when you, what do you think about when you think of God? Or maybe I could put it another way. What picture comes to mind when you imagine what God is like? Now, it's a bit of a tricky question because even in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see that Moses, he wanted to see God, but he was only able to get a glimpse of the glory of his trail. And St. John in the New Testament, he declares in his gospel that no one has seen God. God the Father is what he's talking about. But despite that kind of biblical reality, I think that we all sort of carry around a picture of God in our minds or in our hearts. And that picture, it sort of shapes what we expect from him. It sort of defines our faith. And it it sort of maybe uh, depicts how we treat and view each other. And I bet if you engage the typical person on the street, maybe you'd go down to the circle and and ask a few questions, or maybe even some churches out there, maybe even our church, maybe some of you in this room, a common picture of God is that he is someone who makes rules and enforces those rules, that God is a lawgiver, and that he's sitting up in heaven with his finger raised, he's got a kind of stern look. It's a look of warning and maybe accusation. Maybe it's a picture of a sort of an old, stern, Santa Claus type guy because he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. The second part of that picture that many would adhere to is that since he's old, well, he's outdated. And if he's outdated, well, then he's irrelevant. He's out of touch with life in modern times. He's as irrelevant as modems, faxes, and beepers, right? We don't use those things anymore. Maybe a few people do. But at first glance, Jesus' words, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. At first glance, Jesus' words from Matthew appear to give a picture of God as a law giver, a rule man. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we're going to jump right in. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, 
You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, that is definitely a law, right? That's a rule. It's a law and a rule that I think pretty much all of us here in the room agree with. Not only do we think we should keep that, but we especially want other people to keep it because we don't want to be murdered. And we begin to see that the law and the rules that God gives us aren't necessarily bad things. In fact, the laws and the rules, when viewed in the right context, we see them as actually gifts from God. In fact, when you look in the Old Testament, when the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites, if you look at the context, it was after the Israelites had been delivered from slavery, and they were declared God's people, and then they were given the commandments. We saw it in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Jesus went out, and he sees and he calls. He sees his disciples, and he calls them. That wasn't the way they did it back in Jesus' day. You had to apply. You had to go after a rabbi, and you hope that you could prove your worthiness to be called a disciple. But in Matthew, Jesus goes out, he sees, he calls his disciples, and they're in because of his love for them. They're his disciples. They're part of the family. And that's what it's like. It's like family in many ways. My wife and I, we have three kids, and there is nothing they can do to change that, okay, right? They are our children. They are part of the family. And we love them. We love them before they were born, and nothing will change that. We will love them to the end of our days. They are children. And because of that, we have rules for them, because we know what's best for them. When they were little, we told them, don't put your finger into the outlet, right? Because you would get electrocuted. And when they get older, we say, don't punch your sister in the face, love each other, ask for forgiveness, take care of your friends, be nice, respect your grandmother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Is anybody a parent out there, All right? Do you have rules for your kids, All right? There was one person at 930 that said no, and we had an intervention with them afterwards. So if you're in that sort of vein, we can talk, we can talk later. But we have rules, right? We have rules in our family to protect our children but also to allow them to truly live their life as a member of our family. And that's the way it is in the church. We have a heavenly father, our heavenly father, and we have his son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our older brother, and they got laws for us, guides, restrictions, and instructions that teach us what it means to be a part of the family. And so in our text today, Jesus is gonna, he's gonna unload a lot of stuff, a whole bunch of stuff, Rules and guides and instructions, but they're given to us because he cares about us and he loves us as part of the family. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus goes deeper into this do not murder commandment. He says, I tell you this, that anyone who is angry, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, Jesus is going beyond murder, going beyond taking physical life, and he's searching deep into our hearts. And he's saying, and he's calling out anger. He's calling out name-calling. He's calling out publicly demeaning others. And if you ever thought that God was irrelevant... Jesus, all right, he's talking about murder, he's talking about anger, he's talking about name-calling, he's talking about demeaning others. Have you watched the news recently, right? All four of those things we can see every week in the news. 
In fact, in Jesus' day, public demeaning was highly insulting. All of this stuff we can see in our own lives. We see it on the playground. We see it in politics from the lowest to the highest level. We see it in our families. We see it in our hearts. Jesus takes it a little bit further and he says, it's not only about what you shouldn't do, but it's also about what you should do. And in verse 23, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying is that if there's a relationship in your life that's broken Fixing that and going after that and restoring that relationship is just as important as you come into worship each week. It's a rhythm that you were created for. He continues on in verse 25, and he says the same thing a little bit differently. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, seek out reconciliation, restore relationship, make friends even out of enemies. And we begin to see in Jesus' words to us, these words of law, they're not just a gift to guide us as God's people, but they are there to strengthen our community. And they're also there to turn us from always focusing on ourselves to focusing on the needs of our neighbor. There's a book out there called Your Best Life Now. But I would argue that a better title for that book from a Christian perspective would be Your Neighbor's Best Life Now. The way of Jesus is always turning away not to look at ourselves, but to look at others. He's saying not only do we not murder people, but we also seek to build them up and restore relationship with each other. Now, Jesus is going to tackle three more big type of sins and problems in the world, and we're going to go through them really quickly. And uh, it's a lot of difficult stuff. It's heavy. It's deep stuff. But it's important for us to look at it, and we'll touch on it. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, when you read those words, if you ever thought that Jesus was irrelevant, I'm telling you, uh, we think that we are so advanced in our culture with all the technological advances we have from 2,000 years ago and all the sorts of inventions and the progress we made, yet here these words from 2,000 years ago are so relevant to us. These words of Jesus and about adultery and about where our minds are and what happens because of our technological advances, because of the internet, because of our smartphones, There are things happening out there with our high school students, our junior high kids, even elementary children. And Jesus is saying, because he loves us, he's saying, be careful, because this stuff can destroy you. It can hurt the family. He goes on in verse 29 to say how serious we should be about it. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is speaking a little bit hyperbolically here, right? And a little metaphorically. He's saying, he's not saying if you're having a problem, you should actually go chop your hand off or gouge your eye out. But what he's saying is you should take this seriously. And especially what he's talking about here in this commandment. That if you're struggling with these things, 
If your eye is wandering, if you're struggling with pornography or lust or any of those sort of things, Jesus is saying, take it seriously. And those words are given in a context, and the sermon is given in a context as well. It's given in the context of family. And I'm here to say that if you have any problems with those things, you contact me. You reach out to me or other pastor or someone in your life group or someone that you're close to and get help. Jesus is saying, do what it takes to get help for your own sake and the sake of the family. Jesus continues on in verse 31, and he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, you first read that, and you're like, what is going on there? I don't even know what that means. And it's hard because we're 2,000 years later. But in Jesus' day, women did not have the rights that they do today in our country. And in fact, in our own country, women don't have the rights that they have today 100 years ago. Did you know that in our hundred, in our, it wasn't until the 1910s that most of the states in the United States of America did not give women the right to vote? You go back 110 years and women, most women did not have the right to vote in the entire United States of America. You go back 1,900 years before that in the ancient Near East, in a total patriarchal society, women had very little rights. And here Jesus is calling out the men and their treatment of women, husbands and the treatment of their own wives. And he was restoring what God had intended for marriage. Because you see, in Jesus' day, men were divorcing their wives for as trivial as a matter as not preparing dinner the way they wanted it. And it was abusive. It was terrible. It was abandonment. And it caused terrible things in relationships and families and for children. Jesus calls out the husbands and says, you are called to love your wives, to honor your commitment to them. And the next uh, teaching kind of goes into that. Verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, this is definitely where we have to do our homework, because when we read this, we're like, what in the world is he talking about? But you go back 2,000 years, go back to the time of Jesus, and you'd see that you study the history, you see that the rabbis had developed a highly structured hierarchy of oaths and, and, uh, and, and vows. And they created this legalistic system as a loophole for getting around honoring their word. They said, well, if we don't honor, if we, we make a vow not by God, but we vow by earth or by heaven or by Jerusalem or by some little small thing, well, that vow is not as important. And we can break that vow, and we won't be held accountable. And Jesus comes in, he says, what you are doing is crazy. He's saying, keep it simple. Be honest, be trustworthy, be people of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And in light of marriage, he was calling out the husbands, saying, you can't divorce your wife for whatever reason you come up with. Remember, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, to love and to cherish. Well, my friends, Jesus keeps on going 
and we're not going to keep going. That'll be Pastor Nathan next week for you. But there's a lot of stuff in there. And I was kind of like, why did I get all these topics, all right? There's a lot of stuff in there, though, to unpack. And we can't dig into all of it, but when we look at these laws and these rules and these instructions, as I was thinking about it, I was struck by how relevant they are for us today. How relevant all of these things we struggle with as a society, as a church, as a school, in our families, in our lives, and even in our own hearts. If you ever thought that God was an irrelevant, distant law giver, I'm struck by how relevant these 2,000-year-old words actually are. In fact, 20 years ago, a guy wrote a book to try to prove how relevant these words are. And 20 years ago was 1997. Does that sound right? 20 years ago was 1997, right? And this is, he wrote this book, and it's called this. The, the title of the book was, Did Jesus Use a Modem at the Sermon on the Mount? With this Matthew chapter 5. Does everybody know what a modem is? All right, yeah, all the confirmation kids are like, what are you talking about, right? We all remember the squiggly, squeaky noise that came when the modem turned on, right? And he's got this goofy, lame poem at the beginning of this book, and it says this. Did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what we're looking at. Did he ever try a broadcast fax, which I don't know what that is, to send his message out? Did the disciples carry beepers as they went about their route? Did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, it's a cheesy, lame poem or whatever. The book is trying to prove the point that these words are so relevant. And ironically, this book that he wrote 20 years later, the title is irrelevant to us. But 2,000-year-old sermon speaks directly into our lives and Jesus talks about murder, anger, name-calling, demeaning others, relationship, restoration, reconciliation, adultery, lust, self-control, divorce, women's rights, husband's responsibilities, oaths, vows, promises, keeping your word, honesty, integrity. Powerful, relevant words. And those words are given to us as God's children in a family. We've been adopted into this loving family by our loving heavenly father and he's given us some guides some rules because he wants to protect us he wants to protect our community our families our marriages our relationships with each other's and he wants our hearts to be in the right places so he gives us some rules and that's not such a bad thing but there's always more to it because we break those rules and we fail and we come and we ask for forgiveness. And that's when we're reminded once again every week of the radical love that brought us into the family of God. That despite the fact that we murdered his son on a cross, the father still adopted us. Despite the fact that we cheated on him and went after other gods, he remained faithful to us. Despite the fact that we've broken our vows and we haven't kept our word, he has kept his. From the Old to the New Testament, he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And his promise remains true. I hope the picture of God that you have is not an irrelevant lawgiver, but the picture of a loving father whose radical love and his loving guidance is always scandalously good and true.